All right, well, good evening, everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26? Actually, tonight in our study of Exodus, we're going to be uh, looking at the tabernacle from chapters 26, 27, and a few parts of chapter 30. But I'm not going to read the chapters like we usually do. I'll let you do that on your own. I think it might be better uh, for you to understand everything if I just paraphrase what God is saying to Moses here and uh, what he wants for the tabernacle, how he wants it built, you know, the outer court perimeter fence, the tabernacle proper, altar of sacrifice, the labor, uh, all that was to be made a certain way. And I'd like to just maybe paraphrase it instead of the tedious thing of reading it out of the chapters verse by verse. Uh, it's important, as we've already said, that you, that you understand how everything about the tabernacle was a model of God's throne in heaven and uh, pointed to and was a type of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We're on solid ground, <laughs> scriptural ground in doing so. I mean, looking at everything as it points to Jesus, because in Psalm 40, verse 7, Jesus himself said, the volume of the book, it is written of me. He told the Pharisees in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures daily, for in them you think you have eternal life but it is they that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. So everything in the scriptures points to Jesus, and the tabernacle is a phenomenal study and how it points to Christ. Now, uh, as we said last time, as far as the tabernacle representing Jesus goes, in John 1 verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt. The Greek word means tabernacled among us. In other words, he pitched a tent among us, his human body, for 33 years, and then was crucified. Let's take a tour, guys, in our mind's eye, of what we would have seen if we had come across the tabernacle in the wilderness back then, and to see how it all pointed to Jesus. First of all, the tabernacle itself, or what I'll call the tabernacle proper, the actual building, was also called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, because... It was the place where God and man, man came together for fellowship, just as God and man come together for fellowship today in Christ. Now, as you walked up to the tabernacle, if you were back there in Moses' day and they had finished this thing and you were walking around the desert there for some reason, and you saw this thing in the distance and it, it piqued your curiosity, as you walked up to the tabernacle, you would have seen a large fenced-in area made up of white linen panels. Of course, white speaks of absolute righteousness. Jesus Christ was absolutely righteous in his humanity. Uh, these white linen panels or curtains were uh, held up by silver poles and silver hooks, and the poles then were placed in bronze base plates, sockets. So there were sockets in these base plates, and the poles would fit into that. That's how the perimeter fence was set up. You had uh, bronze base plates, with sockets, the poles went in there, and then these white curtains were hung on these poles, silver poles, along with these uh, silver hooks. The dimension of this fenced-in area was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide by 7.5 foot high. Pretty good size enclosure. Now listen, there was only one way into the tabernacle enclosure, and that was through an opening always facing east, 
which measured 30 feet wide and uh, was woven of uh, linen tapestry. It was a, uh, a woven linen tapestry, I should say, covering the entrance made up of blue, purple, and scarlet embroidery. Blue spoke of divinity. Purple spoke of royalty. And scarlet, of course, spoke of blood. And again, I want to emphasize, guys, that, and we're looking at this as a picture, a model of Christ. I want to emphasize there was only one door into the tabernacle enclosure. Only one way into the tabernacle, the place where God and man came together. And the same is true for all those who desire to have fellowship with God today. There is only one way uh, to have fellowship with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But John 10, verse 1, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So anybody who tries to get into heaven any other way than through Jesus Christ, well, Jesus said, God will consider that person a criminal. A criminal. Because they're trying to get in some other way than through the only way God has provided. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father. No one gets to heaven except through me. Now, upon entering the outer court of the tabernacle, the first thing you would have seen was a large wooden altar covered with bronze, which measured seven and a half feet wide by seven and a half feet deep or long and standing four and a half feet high. This, guys, was called the altar of sacrifice where animals were killed so their blood could atone for the sins of the people and where they were then burned with fire as an offering to God Almighty. Uh, bronze in Scripture is the uh, metal of judgment because it can be subjected to fire, uh, hot fire, and uh, not melt. So it became synonymous in Scripture as a symbol of judgment. The fires of judgment are in view. The idea being, guys, when you walked into the tabernacle uh, enclosure, the outer court, the first thing you came to was the altar of sacrifice, a bronze altar upon which animals were sacrificed for the sins of the people, right? When we look at this, it tells us that if we want to have fellowship with Jesus, the very first thing that has to be dealt with is our sin, is our sin, right? I mean, that has to be atoned for, and it can't be atoned for any other way than through the shedding of blood. As God would say in Leviticus 17, verse 11, I have given you the blood upon the altar to make atonement for the soul. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Paul repeated that basically in Hebrews 9, 22, for without the shedding of blood, there could be no, no remission or forgiveness of sin. Everything was based on the blood atonement. Uh, and of course, it all pointed to Jesus because Jesus is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for us, who took our punishment, our judgment, so that we could have fellowship with God. Now, you pass the brazen altar of sacrifice, and the next thing you come to directly behind it, behind the, the altar of sacrifice, but in front of the tabernacle proper, was another bronze object called the laver. The laver. Now, the laver, for a lack of a better description, looked like a giant bird bath, all right? And uh, it was used for washing. Uh, after the priest would offer the animal sacrifice, before he could enter into the tabernacle proper, he had to first wash. God made this very clear. 
the priest was not allowed to enter into the tabernacle proper until he first washed himself after he had offered the animal sacrifice. Now, this is interesting. This was the only object in the entire tabernacle complex that God didn't specify any dimensions for. He left that up to the people, how large or small they wanted to make it. When Solomon built a temple, he made this thing very large. You can read 1 Kings 7. It was like a pool. Okay. Uh, they called it the Brazen Sea. It wasn't that big, but it was pretty big. What does the labor represent? Well, you know, you got a lot of commentators that claim it represents water baptism. The problem with that view is that the priests wash themselves constantly in the labor all day long as they offer the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices to God. We only get baptized once, right? Once we receive Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. So what does the labor represent? Well, if the altar of sacrifice represents salvation, of course, our sins being atoned for, which makes fellowship with God possible in the first place, fellowship being the key idea, then the labor, in my mind, represents the Word of God. The Word of God, which we wash in constantly for ongoing purity, sanctification, and fellowship with the Lord. In Ephesians 5, verse 26, Paul the Apostle said that he might sanctify and cleanse her, his bride, with the washing of water by the word. So you go out into the, a defiled world, you come home, your mind's all full of gunk, you know, you've been listening to the off-colored remarks and office jokes, often dirty, you know, even though you walk away, you still hear them, uh, the gossip and everything else, and, and it's just out in the world and it's a defiled place, you come home and you want to take the word and take a spiritual shower, you know, just Get yourself clean by just focusing on what God has said. Here's something, well, and the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, David said, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is a way of cleansing us, purifying us. But here's something else. As we read the word of God, we are brought face to face with things we have violated, Right? You're reading the Word of God, and all of a sudden, you read something that God has said that you have disobeyed. Don't forget the labor itself was made, uh, was, uh, was covered with bronze, okay? Bronze being the metal of judgment. The idea is when we read the Bible, it judges us. It points things out that we have violated, commandments we have broken. Now, if our heart is right, if our heart is tender, that should drive us to our knees in confession repentance, and then the blood of Jesus Christ washes us again of all unrighteousness, and our fellowship with God is restored. We need to be in the Word daily to maintain practical, everyday fellowship. That's why the labor doesn't represent water baptism, because that happens one time. But the priests wash constantly in the labor. And we need to wash constantly in God's Word every day for fellowship. 1 John 1, verses 6 and 9, If we say we have fellowship with Him, but walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are restored back to fellowship with him. Now, of course, all of this, again, once again, points to Jesus, who is the word of God. All right, Everything in the tabernacle complex 
tabernacle proper, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. The labor is no different. If the labor speaks of the Word of God, of course, Jesus is the Word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the Word. In Revelation chapter 19, why don't you turn there? Maybe you turn to some of these. Revelation 19, talking about how the Word of God judges sin. It uh, pierces our souls uh, if we have disobeyed what God has said in His Word. But of course, it all points to Jesus. Revelation 19, starting in verse 12, John sees Jesus Christ returning to the earth to establish His kingdom and describes Him. He says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. That flame of fire, that piercing gaze that knows, that knows what's in the heart. All things, Hebrews 4.13 all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And guys, that's why God didn't specify uh, how large to make the labor, because it represents the Word of God. And we decide how much of the Word... We want in our lives. Remember the manna that fell every day in the wilderness also represented the word of God, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, remember? In John 6, he said, you know, I was the bread. That represented me. Moses didn't give your father's manna in the wilderness. My father gave you that manna. And now I've come down, the true manna, the true bread of, from heaven, right? But they could gather as much manna as they wanted in the morning. Now, you had to gather it early because when the sun came up, it melted away, and you were done for the day. So you had to get up early. Something about getting up, getting up early to spend time with Jesus in the Word. But they could gather as much manna as they wanted. As, even as we can spend as much time in the Word, fellowshipping with Jesus as we want. Feeding on Him every day. And uh, washing in the water of His Word. Now, after you enter the tabernacle courtyard and pass by the altar of sacrifice, and then the laver... Then you came to a building, and it measured 15 feet high by 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. This was the tabernacle proper, the place where God and man met, of course, through the priest, because man was not worthy to have fellowship with God directly. He had to go through a mediator, the priesthood. Uh, the priests were the mediators that kind of joined uh, man and God together for fellowship. Of course, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is the ultimate mediator. In fact, we, when we receive him, he turns us into priests. We're called a kingdom of priests as the church of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Primarily it means each one of us can come to God directly now. We don't need a go-between. Jesus was the mediator. Jesus laid his cross over the gulf that sin opened up, and now we walk across his cross, his sacrifice for us to have fellowship with God anytime we want because we can approach him. We are now worthy through Jesus' blood to approach God directly. But this was the tent of meeting, the place where God and man came together uh, through the priesthood for the purpose of fellowship. Now, this building, guys, was made up of boards of acacia wood overlaid with gold, each measuring 15 feet high by about 26 inches wide. On the bottom of each of these boards, because they were set up vertically, 
on the bottom of each of these boards, you had two tenons. Okay, these were uh, little tabs that protruded. And these boards would fit into uh, sockets in silver base plates. There were 100 of them in total, each socket or base plate weighing about 100 pounds. So you get the idea, all right? They had, whenever they set the tabernacle up, they took these very heavy silver plates, base plates, with holes in them to receive the tenons on each of the boards, okay, 15 feet high, 26 inches uh, wide. And uh, these boards were then placed in these base plates to form the walls of the tabernacle. Now, I want you to see this in your mind's eye. As the boards were set up, and you can read about this, that's why we're not reading it verse by verse. It's a little hard to understand what's being said. So I've tried to do all the homework and the background stuff, so you know you don't have to try to labor through. You can read it on your own, of course. I encourage you to do that. But I tried to make it simple where, you know, to explain really what the Lord is saying here. If you read the section in uh, chapter 26 about the tabernacle, when these boards were set up, now this made the tabernacle proper, the walls of the tabernacle proper, right? When these boards were placed in these silver base plates, of course, they were not very rigid because, you know, they would move. So, again, 15 feet high, each wall. Every three feet, there was a board that was to run. It's called a bar, but it was made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold. I would imagine it looked more like a, uh, a four by six. So you had these, these four by six probably, I just described it that way, every three feet. So five all together because you had 15 foot of wall height. And they would run through holders or uh, some kind of a thing where they would slide through holders. And when you slid all of these boards uh, horizontally across these walls on three sides, it gave rigidity to the walls of the tabernacle. Now. Let me just stop for a second and explain some of the symbolism. All the walls of the tabernacle were made, first of all, with wood. Wood, of course, was something that was planted, grew, was alive, eventually cut down, and died, right? It all spoke of Christ in his humanity. He was born, he grew, he went to the cross, he died, okay? It all spoke about Jesus' humanity. In fact, we even read in Isaiah 53, verse 2, uh, how that, you know, he was born, lived, and died as a human being. It says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. So again, likening Jesus' humanity to something planted, and that's what the wood in the tabernacle represented. Something that was alive, but was cut down and died. Jesus Christ, of course, uh, is in view there. But overlaid with gold. The gold spoke of kingship and divinity. And uh, I wanted to just point out, though, that once again, these boards that made up this enclosure for the tabernacle, the place where God and man actually came together for fellowship, these boards were placed in silver sockets, right? Do you realize that silver in the Bible is the medal of redemption? The medal of redemption. In other words, the whole reality, listen, the whole reality of fellowship between God and man was built on redemption. There could be no fellowship with God if we were not redeemed from our sins. In fact, silver again in the scripture is the medal of redemption. In chapter 30, God said that every man 20 years old and above was to pay a half shekel of silver as a ransom. It was called the price of life. 
you were redeeming your life. You know, that you had to pay God because he gave you life and you had to now redeem yourself from him. And silver was the metal. You can read about this in Exodus. In fact, turn to Exodus 30. Let's just read it. It doesn't say silver in chapter 30, but in other places, we know the metal of redemption was a half shekel of silver. But let's read Exodus 30, starting with verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above. So under 20 uh, was before the age of accountability. When somebody hit 20, now they were considered of the age of accountability. And they had to redeem themselves uh, from God. And... Um, Verse 14, everyone included among them, uh, uh, among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above, shall give an offering to the Lord. Listen, the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a half shekel, a half shekel of silver, when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Interesting. The price of redemption is the same for every person. Every one of us needs to be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Remember Peter said that? We were redeemed not with, you know, coins or gold, silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' blood is sufficient for everybody, wealthy, poor, kings, paupers. Everybody needs to be redeemed with the same price, the blood of Christ. Now, Here's something else you may not have realized. The tabernacle had walls, but no roof. No roof. When it was set up, there was nothing on top. It was wide open. The roof that God said was to be put over the opening was made up of four layers of different materials. Four layers of different materials. The first layer, the one that you would see if you were to enter into the tabernacle proper and look up, the first layer was white linen, it was to be embroidered with cherubim, angels, made with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So if you were inside the tabernacle looking up, that's what you would see on the ceiling. You would see beautiful white linen and all these angels embroidered with the purple and the blue and the scarlet thread. Then over that layer of linen, the next layer was of goat's hair. And I'm sure all of these have some significance. I'm not going to get into that. You can dig that out in your own I, give you some homework okay uh, the next layer after the white linen that went on top of it was a layer of goat's hair and over that the next layer was ram's skin dyed red and on top of that the uppermost layer uh, was badger skins which looked kind of gray and leathery and but were waterproof and so as you enter the outer courtyard of the tabernacle uh, you'd see the bronze altar of sacrifice behind it, the bronze laver. And then you'd see this strange, ugly-looking building. <laughs> I have to understand something. The badger skins came down from the top and came down the sides, almost touching the ground, which gave this building a look of a tent. Okay, the tent of meeting, but really it had 
walls made of golden wood. Uh, but if you looked at it, uh, the badger skins would come down almost to the ground. I've seen artist renditions of this, and uh, ugly, ugly looking thing. But you know what? God wanted it that way for a purpose. He designed it that way for a purpose, to look ugly. You say, what do you mean? From the outside, the tabernacle, listen, had no beauty to it at all. You wouldn't see the beauty until you entered into it. When it comes to Jesus, guess what? People don't see the full extent of his beauty until they enter into him by faith. They might know him as from a distance, but they have no idea of the beauty until they enter into him by faith. But guys, this also speaks, I'm convinced, this also speaks of our Savior and how he was so badly beaten at the hands of the Roman soldiers that the Bible says he no longer looked like a human being. And that was before he was scourged and then was nailed to that cross and crucified. All of this was necessary that our sins would be forgiven so that we could have fellowship with God. Turn to Isaiah 50. So a lot of people don't realize what Jesus Christ was subjected to at the hands of the Roman soldiers before he was even uh, crucified. But in Isaiah, Jesus Christ is speaking about that time. Of course, he's out of time. He's outside of time. So for him, it was happening at that moment because God is always in the eternal present tense. But listen to what he says, Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Do you realize that when they abused Jesus, the Roman soldiers, they actually ripped the beard out of his face? Isaiah 53, starting with verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ was our substitute. It's called penal substitution. Penal punishment, substitution. Another was punished in our place. This is what the gospel is built on. Unfortunately, you have some today who are trying to deny penal substitution. They're trying to say that Jesus' death on the cross did not purchase our salvation. That is a heresy. You want to stay away from that. It's a flat-out heresy. Those promoting it are heretics. And yet some of them are very popular speakers in churches across this country. Peter said there would some come in the New Testament period who would uh, secretly bring in damning heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and would bring upon themselves swift destruction. Penal substitution is the basis for the gospel. That sinners can't die for sinners. It would take the innocent to die for the guilty. Another would have to be punished in my place. Someone sinless 
if I was to have forgiveness of sins, and you as well. Jesus Christ was beaten pretty badly before he was crucified. Of course, he was then scourged. Um, many men died at the scourging post. It was such a horrific torture. But he was beaten pretty badly. His beard was ripped out of his face and so on. And uh, he was pretty disfigured, pretty disfigured. The thing that a lot of people don't seem to realize is that the Lord Jesus seems to have retained the marks and wounds of his crucifixion, even after his resurrection and bodily glorification. As we read the Gospels, and we see the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus, you know, after he was raised from the dead, it seemed that none of his disciples recognized him. You realize that? None of his disciples seemed to recognize him. Mary at the tomb, right? She's weeping. And Jesus said to her, you know, woman, why are you weeping? And she, assuming he was the gardener, said, sir, where is the body of my Lord? Tell me, I'll, I'll, I'll get it and bring it back. It wasn't until she, he said her name, and he must have had a way of saying her name, Mary, that she immediately recognized it was Jesus. Until that time, she didn't know it was him. Now people say, well, she was crying, her eyes were swollen. Maybe. I can, I can accept that it was one thing. But then remember that afternoon, as two disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, right? And suddenly Jesus appears, you know, kind of walks up behind them, and here he is. And they don't know who he is. And he engages them in this long conversation and Bible study about how the Christ had to suffer uh, before he entered into glory and so on. Gave him this incredible Bible story. You know, any Bible study the Lord Jesus gives is going to be incredible. Okay? I can't wait till I can retire and he does all the teaching in heaven. But it wasn't until they got to Emmaus that they encouraged him, please dine with us. It wasn't until he prayed over the meal, broke the bread, that their eyes were open and he disappeared. Why were their eyes opened? Maybe they saw the nail prints in his hands. I don't know. We know that a few days later, as the disciples had gone back to fishing, remember Peter? I'm going fishing, you know? So he goes back to fishing, and the other guy said, well, we'll join you. They fished all night and caught nothing. In the morning, there was a, a stranger on the bluff looking over the Sea of Galilee. That he said, you know, children, have you caught any fish? You know how that goes. Every fisherman hears that. Caught any fish? You know. They didn't recognize him. Well, they were kind of far out, and it was kind of misty because it was morning, maybe. But here's the clincher. He said, cast the net on the other side. Of course, it was so full of fish that, you know, it began, the boat began to sink. And uh, Peter said, it's the Lord. You know, and he jumps in the sea, swims the shore. And the other guys are coming in slow, dragging this big catch of fish. And Jesus, when they get, they get to the shore, John 21, verse 12, Jesus got a fire going and some fish cooking, right? He doesn't need their fish. He can create his own fish. So he, got the, he had a fire going with some fish on it, right? And then... Was it John or Peter, I forgot, said something that to me blows this thing out of the water with any uncertainty. John said, I think it was John said, and none of us dare ask him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. Oh, wow. Why didn't those who were his closest followers recognize him after his resurrection? Well, I believe it was because he was beaten so badly before the cross, they couldn't recognize him. Well, but didn't his resurrection from the dead and his glorification fix that apparently not apparently not 
We know that after his resurrection, he still bore the marks of his crucifixion because he showed his disciples up in the upper room the nail prints in his hand, the spear wound in his side. Remember that? This was after he rose from the dead. When he returned to heaven, remember after 40 days he ascended back into heaven? When he ascended back into heaven, he still bore the marks of his crucifixion. In Revelation chapter 5, John sees a vision of the throne of God, right? And listen to what he said in Revelation 5 verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, listen, as though it had been slain. Of course, we go on to realize that lamb was the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, but it's okay now, right? He's, he doesn't look that way now, does he? Well, I don't know, but I know that the Bible says when we finally are raptured and we see him face to face, remember? The Bible talks about we'll finally see him face to face. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 53, verse 2. And Isaiah says when we see him, he has no form nor comeliness. The word comeliness means beauty. He has no beauty when we see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. When we first see the Lord Jesus Christ when we're raptured, we're going to look at him and there's going to be no beauty that we see, you know, just looking at him, that we should desire him. Just like when the people looked at the tabernacle in the wilderness. There was no beauty when they looked at it that they should desire it, right? Isaiah 52, verse 14 says, As just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Hebrews is a little clumsy, but let me tell you what most commentators believe Isaiah is saying. When we see him for the first time, we're going to be so shocked his appearance is so marred, he was tortured. He was, uh, he was disfigured by the beatings and so on. As we look at him, we're going to see him so marred, so disfigured, more than the sons of men. In other words, it, the, many believe the Hebrew is so much so he didn't even look like the son of a man. Didn't even look human. In fact, Isaiah says when we finally see him, we will turn our face away. It will be so shocking at what we were not really told, at what we didn't realize. Now, furthermore, when Jesus returns to the earth, he's still going to be bearing the marks of his crucifixion at his second coming. Remember what it says in Zechariah 12, verse 10? When the Jews see him, they're going to mourn. They're going to look upon him whom they have, what? Pierced. And they're going to mourn. We did this to our own Messiah. Look what we did to our own Messiah. You say, well, how long will he bear the marks of his crucifixion? I don't know. Maybe forever. Because Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 7, that in ages yet to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's a very good possibility that Jesus will bear the marks of his crucifixion for all eternity so that every time we look at him, we will remember how much he loved us to go through all of this that we might be saved. So let me just say this. Your first glimpse of Jesus is probably going to be a very shocking experience. Prepare yourself. Now getting back to looking at the tabernacle in Exodus, again, there was only one door into the tabernacle proper. 
which was divided by a curtain into two compartments. Two compartments. The first compartment, the one you first walked into from the outside, was called the holy place. And that measured 15 foot high by 15 feet wide by 30 foot long. That was divided by a curtain or a veil. And the second compartment was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And that was a perfect 15 by 15 by 15 foot cube. When you entered into the first room, and we, this is a little bit, some of this is a review from last time, so bear with me because there's some new people. But as you entered into the first room, the holy place of the tabernacle, to your right you would see, as we talked about last week, a small golden table called the table of showbread. And it was a table made of wood overlaid with gold, measured three foot in length by 18 inches in width and stood 27 inches tall. And uh, it was called the table of showbread because every week, 12 loaves of bread had to be baked and put on display. They were, they were shown, uh, and each loaf represented one of the 12 tribes. So every week, you, the priest would have to bake new loaves, and when they put out the fresh loaves, they took the old ones, and the priest could then eat those loaves of bread. But, uh, of course, again, this spoke of Jesus Christ, who was the bread of life. So that was to the right. If you look to the left of the tabernacle, you would see... Uh, the menorah, which was the seven-branched oil-burning lampstand uh, that we talked about last week. John the Apostle talking about Jesus coming into the world. And, of course, the menorah represented him. But John said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not, some of your Bibles say, comprehend it. Others say, extinguish it. Once God's light has come into the world, it can never be extinguished. I mean, Jesus Christ came into this world as light. I am the light of the world, right? Why did he come into the world? To light men and women's way back to God. Well, that's what the menorah basically was. It was a light source by which it lit the way for men to have fellowship with God. But it spoke of Jesus, the ultimate light of the world that entered a world of darkness, gave forth God's truth, lived the truth of God, was a light to shine, light the way back to the Father, because we sin had separated us and so on. And uh, so that was the menorah. And uh, so you walk in to the right, the table of showbread, to the left was the menorah. Right in front of you, standing outside the curtain that led into the Holy of Holies, was a small golden altar. And uh, it was called the altar of incense, small golden altar. Uh, interestingly, the altar of incense was made of wood, of acacia wood, also overlaid with gold, and it measured 18 inches by 18 inches and stood three foot tall. Three foot tall. Which means for the priest to burn incense on it, they would have to what? Bow down. They would have to bow down for it to be used. And it was upon this little golden altar that the priest would burn incense to the Lord, which represented, listen, Prayers of intercession. Prayers of intercession. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And guys, this also speaks of the ministry of Jesus Christ in heaven. And where he now uh, forever lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest. Turn to Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is our great high priest who ascended back to the Father 
and now ever lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest. Hebrews 7.25, and guys, let me just say this to you. You probably don't realize this, but Hebrews 7.25 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, right up there with John 3.16. Right up there with John 3.16. And I'll show you why. It says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the what? You know what that means? All the way to the end. When you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, you were redeemed. At that point, you're not hanging on to him. He's holding on to you. There are a lot of people who have a theology of salvation that says, you know, you got to hang on to Jesus. And if you, you know, your grip weakens and you let go, you're lost. Your salvation depends on how much you can hang on to him. No, it doesn't. John 10 says, he's holding on to me. And the Father's hanging on to me too. Together, they're both holding me and you in their hands, and nothing will ever be able to pluck us out of their hands. When we get saved, we got saved, Jesus Christ is able to save us all the way to glory. Why? Because he ever lives to make what? Intercession. Turn to... 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. All right, so, you know, I want you to live a holy life, John says, and so on. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus is, the word advocate there is a word that means attorney for the defense. Okay. What does that mean? Well, when Satan accuses me before the Father when I blow it and sin and wants to condemn me, then Jesus steps up as my advocate, my defense attorney, and says, Father, don't listen to that. I already paid for those sins. They're all under my blood. And he intercedes on my behalf. Romans 5, verse 10. Paul said, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled by his death, saved, okay, how much more shall we be saved by his what? By his life. If God could do the greater, save us from our sins in the first place, can't he do the lesser, hang on to us now that we are saved? Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, I'll give you one more. Turn to John 6. Because some people think, well, yeah, no, no, there's a lot of people who have received Christ as Savior, but then they were lost. They blew it. They didn't keep walking with him, didn't live a holy life, whatever that means, how you define that. And so they, they lost it. All right, well, let's see what the Bible says. John 6, starting with verse 37. Jesus said, all the Father gives me will come to me. Okay? And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose what? 20%, 10%, it's not bad. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Notice he said it, not him or her. 
should raise it up at the last day. What's he talking about? Body of Christ. I mean, once we're saved, we are placed in the body of Christ. We become members of his body. We are no longer individual cells in a body. We are members of his body. And as such, when he raises up the body of Christ at the rapture, all of us get raised up. Nobody falls through the cracks. Nobody, you know, doesn't hang on as they're being zipped up into, into heaven, you know. I mean, he's holding on to us. He said, you know, where I'm going, guys, the night before his crucifixion, you can't follow me. I'll come back for you, though. And where, that where I am, you might be also. I'm going to come back and get you. You don't have to build a stairway to heaven. I'll come back and get you, okay? I, I just love that because people don't realize that, you know, I was saved by his death, but now I'm kept by his life. Because no matter how the devil tries to condemn me, when I blow it, Jesus steps up and says, Father, I've taken care of it. All their sins have been washed by my blood. They are sinless. Now, again, guys, separating the holy place from the second room, the holy of holies, was a curtain or a veil. That was for the tabernacle when Solomon built the temple. It was a wall of cloth, 30 feet high. And uh, there are estimates that it was anywhere from 12 to 18 inches thick. So they just kept weaving, uh, sewing layer upon layer upon layer of fabric until this thing was a wall. Uh, it was a wall of separation. It, it always reminded the priests and all mankind that sin had separated them from God. It was a wall of separation. And there was nothing... It took 300 Levites, from what I understand, because they have to wash the thing once in a while, 300 guys that pull it down, clean it, and stick it back up there again. When Jesus died on the cross, the very instant he said, it is finished, bowed his head, and dismissed his spirit, the veil of the temple was torn from what? Top to bottom. Which meant God ripped it. It wasn't torn bottom to top top to bottom what was god saying open house anybody who receives my son you can come directly you don't need a priest the wall of separation is done we have fellowship now what the jews do sewed it back up thank you no no no. we don't we want religion we have too much invested in this deal to give it up now and so they sewed it up and kept doing the animal sacrifice you know what god did 30 Nine years later, he said, that's enough. And he had the Romans destroy the temple. Wipe it out. Leveled it. God was saying, enough. It's over the old system. It's been replaced with the new covenant. A better high priest. Better promises. A high priest who doesn't have to be replaced every time the old one dies. This high priest lives forever and makes intercession for us. But once you enter the Holy of Holies, and you better not do it, only the high priest could enter, and then once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. But if you could enter the Holy of Holies back then, you would see, as we talked last week, a small rectangular box. It actually was a piece of furniture that contained two pieces. A rectangular wooden box made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold inside and out, that measured 3 foot 9 inches long by 2 foot 3 inches wide, 2 foot 3 inches high. On top of it went a lid made of pure gold called the mercy seat. As we talked about last time, on the mercy seat, or beaten from one piece of gold, this mercy seat was to be one piece and there were to be cherubim on it. An angel on each end, kneeling down, facing each other, kneeling down, 
with their heads looking down toward the mercy seat and their wings extending upward, touching almost tip to tip, right above the mercy seat. And the Bible said the mercy seat was symbolic of God's throne upon the earth. It was the place where God was symbolically understood to dwell. Now, when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it, he said, Lord, come on, we weren't under any, under any illusion that this is really your throne. And the heavens are your throne, the earth is your footstool. But thank you that you've allowed yourself, your presence to be a part of this earthly temple, and so on. Now, the lid was called the mercy seat, and we got into this a little bit last time, but the lid was called the mercy seat because on the Day of Atonement, as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices upon the mercy seat, guys, this was intended to atone for all the sins of ignorance committed by God's people on a national level, which then allowed God, as the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices on the mercy seat, it was for all the sins of the nation that hadn't been atoned for. Some of them were forgotten. Some of them, you know, uh, I'll get to it, never did. Some of them were sins of ignorance. They had done something wrong, didn't realize it. These were all sins that needed to be atoned for. If the nation was going to be in good standing with God, if the nation was going to have fellowship with God, as you know, people have fellowship with God, but nations are blessed as well, right? And the idea is that, you know, on a national level, look, you guys in this room, I'm convinced pretty much all of you, or most of you are Christians, of course, and you have fellowship with God, right? I mean, you have a relationship with Him, and He blesses you and so on. But look at our nation. Our nation's in bad shape. Because as a nation, we have turned our backs on God. Our leaders don't honor God. They're doing everything in their power, it seems, to violate what God has said. And we as a nation, like the Jews back in the Old Covenant times, eventually God judged the nation and brought them to Babylon. Now, there were righteous Jews that were taken. Daniel and his three friends were taken. They were good guys, righteous men. But sometimes we talk about national sins. God took care of them in Babylon. But we talk about national sins. We as a nation, we all pay for that. So God had a little program called the Yom, Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And um, this happened once a year. It was a national day of atonement where all the unknown, all the forgotten, all the unatoned for sins could be covered and forgiven. And listen, guys, this was a great day of liberation for the conscience because every Jew knew there were sins they hadn't really dealt with. And to have one day where God dealt with all the sins of the nation that were remaining was a day of liberation. You know, their conscience was clear. You can read Leviticus 16. But uh, the Israelites knew that whatever sins had been missed throughout the year would now be taken care of. The slate would be completely wiped clean, at least for a while. Okay. Uh, but Yom Kippur was a time of release and relief. And every devout Jew, listen, longed for the Day of Atonement. That everything could be taken care of. The slate could be wiped absolutely clean. Now, getting back to the tabernacle, and we're going to bring this to a close now. We see in the tabernacle and later the temple these different pieces of furniture, right? The table of showbread, the menorah, the golden altar of incense. The one piece of furniture you didn't see in the tabernacle slash temple was a chair. 
a chair. And the reason there was no chair was because the priest's work was never finished. I mean, the blood of animals under the Old Covenant could not take away sin. They could only temporarily cover sin until the next sin was committed. Consequently, well, the priest never sat down because their work was never done. That is until Jesus came and offered himself a sacrifice for sin. We know he was the Lamb of God whose blood took away our sins once and for all time, which meant his work was done. His work was done. As he himself stated from the cross, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, it says of Jesus, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had, when he had himself purged our sins, he died for our sins on the cross, he eventually ascended back to the Father, and what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ, he finished the work. The blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. It could only cover them. Yom Kippur, day of covering. That's what the term literally means, the day of covering. Because they knew the, the blood of animals could not take away sin. They could only temporarily cover sin that they might have fellowship with God. But sin in the mind of a Jew was always there. They knew the blood of animals couldn't completely wash them of their sins, and their conscience always bothered them about that. But when Jesus died on the cross, eventually ascended back, rose from the dead, ascended back to the Father, and he sat down, signifying his work was finished. Guys, the word mercy seat is a Greek word that means the place where sins are forgiven. Remember, as we've already said, everything about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus in some way. And guys, listen, this was especially true of the mercy seat. Let me have you turn to a couple more scriptures. We'll close. 1 John 2. We've already read this, but let's read a couple of verses here again. Verse, uh, 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is a word that uh, could mean satisfied. Satisfied. Jesus' death satisfied the righteous requirements of God. Somebody had to pay for sin. Sin brings death. Okay, the soul that sins shall surely die. We all sinned. We should have all died eternally. But Jesus Christ died in our place. And his sacrifice satisfied the Father's righteousness, right? He himself is the propitiation for our sins, but listen, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't just die for the elect. He died for all sinners. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men, all women to myself. The invitation is going out into all the world through the gospel. Romans 3.25 Paul said, Whom God set forth, speaking of Jesus, as a propitiation by His blood. Do you realize the, word, the words mercy seat and propitiation are the same words in the Greek? The same word. Mercy seat, propitiation. Jesus Christ is called our propitiation. That means he's also called our mercy seat. Same word in the Greek. Jesus is our mercy seat. 
He is our propitiation. He is the place where sin is forgiven. He is the place where God's righteousness is satisfied through the blood of his son. So, fellowship. God loved us so much that after the fall of man, he didn't want us to go on living in separation from him, but developed a whole system, old covenant replaced by the new covenant, all designed to allow us to have fellowship with God once again. But it was all revolving around Jesus Christ. Old Testament sacrifices look forward to Christ. Of course, in the new covenant, we look backwards to the cross. But Jesus Christ is the issue. There can be no fellowship without his blood uh, having been shed for us. So we'll continue on, God willing, next time. And uh, we'll look at uh, priestly garments and some of the other things. And uh, as we move towards the finish line in our study of Exodus. Father, we thank you for your word. So rich in type, shadows, pictures, and so on. But Lord, even though the Old Testament is rich in shadows, in the New Covenant we have the reality, we have the substance. Jesus has come. The one that all these things were pointing to. All these things that really were a type, a shadow, a model of him and his work. And Lord, we thank you, we praise you, that you loved us so much that you developed a system whereby fallen man could have fellowship with a holy God through the blood of your Son. And we thank you, Lord, that through the blood of our Savior, all men and women can be saved. Everybody gets saved the same way, same price, the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. But once we are saved, Father, we live in a defiled world. And as we go out into the world to work or to whatever, we pick up some of that defilement, give us grace to run home, get our word out and take a little shower that the word would cleanse us again, get us thinking rightly, get our outlook of life corrected, that our perception would always be heavenly and never earthbound, like Solomon, unfortunately, spent so many years looking at life under the sun. But Lord, you've elevated us to uh, heavenly places. Give us grace to see this life from eternity's vantage point, that we might live with eternity in our heart every day. So, Father, we thank you. We ask you to continue blessing our studies. In Exodus, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.